following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like hitting all green lights good. Finding an onion ring in your french fries good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a trunk club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. So you're seeing a really a generation of Americans that are living with their parents longer. They're delaying marriage. They're renting far, far longer than, they, they, than any previous generation. And that rent is making up a larger percentage of their income. Um, in New York now, it's above 60% of the average renter's uh, income is taken up in rent. Welcome to the Forbes interview. I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, we do in-depth interviews with some of today's most significant business leaders. Hey, everybody. We have a great show today. We have Brad Hargraves, who is the co-founder of General Assembly, which is, of course, a trade school for technology and design. And now his new project is Common, the cool, cutting-edge co-living space it's not a dormitory. Brad, tell us about Common, first of all, on that, on that, on that note. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Are you an RA? Today. Are you like the, the dorm RA? Is that, <laughs> your, is that your title now? I, 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 try to, I try to stay out of the homes, actually. The members, uh, members don't always like me popping by. But um, yeah, so we, we really saw that people love, you know, living with roommates is a pretty big component of housing in big urban centers. Mm-hmm. Um, but no real estate developers, very few people on the side of building housing are actually focused on the needs or, or, or how to make the roommate experience better. Mm-hmm. So in New York City alone, about three quarters of a million households are shared in some way, or, you know, roommates in some cases, you know, unrelated multi-generational households. And we looked at this and said it's a massive market in, you know, between you know, 10 to 20 big urban hubs um, representing, you know, high millions, low tens of millions of people. Uh, there needs to be a management company. There needs to be an organization that's really focused on making this a making this a better experience and working directly with real estate developers and real estate capital mm-hmm. to not only lay out buildings in the right way, um, but to operate them in a way that's as convenient, it's centered on community, and it's also flexible um, to meet the needs of you know, modern renters. What is the history of this? I mean, because obviously roommates is, are not a new thing. It's a rite of passage in cities. I mean, I was thinking before the, the show, like almost for the last 20 years, I think I've, I think I've lived by myself for three months out of that from you know leaving high school and going into uh, you know dorm rooms and frats, then roommates, and then family, like... It's kind of if you're living in a big city these days, you're going to have multiple roommates. Is this business of designing for roommates what you're doing is it a new trend or just basically rehash of an old old idea? Well, I sort of believe that all yeah. all, all new ideas uh, were, were were old at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the history of housing in the United States, um, the idea of a suburban nation where most people live in single family detached homes uh, is is largely an invention of the mid 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look back before that to the early part of the 20th century and the 19th century, um, when Americans lived in cities, they usually lived in places that we would today 
look as hotels. Mm -hmm. Now, they weren't transients. They weren't coming and going. They lived there permanently. Um, Probably the best pop culture example of this is the Old West Saloon. Mm -hmm. Um, When you showed up up to the old old saloon, uh, there were people living upstairs. Um, It looked like a hotel, but people ate together in dining halls downstairs there, there were, were no ca- kitchens there were, there were in the card units. games and shootouts exactly and, and, and uh dancing ladies right? and lots of whiskey yes um so the, we kind of look at the residential hotel of the early 20th century as as an inspiration mm-hmm. um it was also a key component of middle class housing in cities and that's the most important point um today we associate you know group homes boarding houses with really housing the poorest of the poor uh, the housing of last resort but this type of housing um, really was a key source of, of middle class uh, housing for a big part of America's history. And that's largely gone away in major U.S. cities. And it's one of the reasons you see the hollowing out of many cities like New York and San Francisco, where you, know, you have the very poor, you have the very rich, mm-hmm. and you really have no middle class living yeah. in the urban core. There's no housing that's built for them. Yeah, and it's interesting. Like, there, it's yeah, this kind of reminds me a little bit of you know air, the surge of Airbnb in the sense that you know this is how the Airbnb way staying in people's homes was how America used to do it, and then hotels sprung up to solve that problem, and then Airbnb's re coming back to solve the problem of hotels. It's what, and it's, I think it's this whole sharing economy. Is it, it why is this back? Why is I mean, Commons a great idea, and why is it happening now? Is it tech? Is it economic? Is it housing? Is it a mix of everything? It's it's very, very hard to pry apart the different reasons why something like this is happening. There's clearly a necessity component, but there's also a technology enabler that's happening now mm-hmm. that enables, for instance, you know, our members to seamlessly move between different cities where we have homes, um, and that to be tech-enabled and really, really simple for them. Um, whereas it, you know, if it were all done in paper leases and checks, that would be a lot more complicated. Um, but you're certainly seeing a need. More young Americans live with their parents today um, than at any point in in recorded history. Something um, on the order of 30% of people uh, 18 to 35 live with their parents, Mm -hmm. um, which is actually getting to the point where it's surpassing the percentage of people in that age group that own their own home. Wow, that's crazy. Which is continuing to decline um, and really has declined year over year since the 2008 housing crisis. Uh, so you're seeing um, a really uh, a generation of Americans that are living with their parents longer. They're delaying marriage. They're renting far, far longer than they, they than any previous generation. And that rent is making up a larger percentage of their income. Um, in New York now, it's above 60% of the average renter's uh, income is taken up in rent. Oh, tell me about it, man. <laughs> You know, as a, as as a New Yorker, I I, I feel I, I feel it, and um, what that's done is it's it's made homeownership um, inaccessible for a large percentage of young people. In particular, they're paying so much of their income in rent that the idea of affording a two hundred thousand dollar down payment on a small studio or one bedroom is just an absurd concept. Yeah, it's like rent. Is the new luxury living within an hour of a city is the new like, high end luxury for a lot of a lot of people. It is, and 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 flexibility. And I think you have a lot of young people today who saw their parents um, take a major hit in the two thousand eight downturn, mm-hmm. and there is a certain luxury of 
flexibility of not being tied into a physical place, tied into a physical asset. Um, and that's one of the hardest trends and concepts to really quantify is how much is there a real desire to not own, a real desire to, you know, continue being flexible with the way we live. Yeah, I mean, flexibility is is a underappreciated asset, I think. Right. I mean, I've been renting in the city for, I mean, over a decade and there was a time, a couple, you know, almost a decade ago, I got laid off and kind of did a career change. I'm thinking, wow, if I had a mortgage, if I had to pay these, this, this like upcoming, you know, if I had to pay this debt every month, I wouldn't have the flexibility to be able to take risk and change careers. And even you can pick up and move. Like the flexibility is really valuable to a lot of people. Yeah. Well, one, one very strange phenomenon that's, that's happened in the United States over the last 20 to 30 years is that moving has become the domain of the wealthy. It didn't used to be that way. Usually moving, having to schlep your stuff from city to city, um, was something that happened as a result of economic strain, mm -hmm. uh, you know, dispossession. Um, it was something that happened, you know, generally at the lower ends of the socioeconomic yeah, ladder. Around, you were moving around look, looking for work, looking for money, looking for just, you had to leave town. Kind of and right. that has changed. Today, the people who move really are in the kind of upper middle and upper, upper classes. And they move for pleasure. They move for entertainment. They move for, they move for jobs. Yeah. Um, they move for opportunity. Whereas uh, actual mobility from city to city has gone down pretty dramatically for uh, people in the lower middle and and and, and um, impoverished individuals. Yeah, meanwhile, I'm sure if you look at your Facebook page, I'm sure it's like a, a triangle migration of people just constantly cycling from New York to San Francisco to LA and back. I feel like there's a whole it's almost like migration these days. Well, a common that's 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 how we think of deciding you know where we go next, where yeah. we put our next home. You know, we let all of our members move between our homes, so. Uh, we're in New York, we're in San Francisco, we're in D.C., we're in Chicago, we're in those places because mm -hmm. that's where our, our members want to live. So in some ways, what, what we're trying to do is maintain that intercity mobility as a element of the middle class. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, between leases, between mortgages, it can get uh, extremely difficult to actually pick up and move to a new place, even for a really interesting opportunity. I want to jump to common right now. Like you have a really fun job in the sense that you get to start from scratch and design like these great co-living habitats. So how do you design a perfect co-living house or a co-living building with common? Like what are the features? What's like the fun stuff? Like if I move into common, you know, it's not just a normal house. There's like very cool features, whether it's technology, design, social, like Give me the perfect house. Totally. So the, the, the key thesis going into common is that uh, most people are willing to sacrifice some private space in exchange for affordability mm -hmm. and access to nicer shared spaces, uh, particularly people in expensive urban hubs. Um, so one thing we saw is that the kitchen is the most underutilized space in a apartment. It is also the most expensive to build. So if you build fewer kitchens, you can actually generate a pretty substantial uh, drop in rent. And we saw that a lot of people, rather than going into a studio with a little tiny hot plate and a mini fridge, um, were really excited to have access to a nice, beautiful chef's kitchen mm -hmm. uh, that they just shared with, you know, generally between four to six other people. And that sacrifice, that trading off of private space and private things for sh nicer shared things 
uh, is the really, really high-level thesis behind Comet. How do you decide who gets to store their clothes in the oven? How does that work? <laughs> you mean the dryer? The dryer, yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for us, it's, it's just really about, um, you know, addressing a lot of the reasons why roommates fight. So obviously, when you share, you, when you, whenever you share space, you're kind of opening the window to conflict. Uh, we embrace that; we don't shy to shy away from it. But we try to do smart things to address the causes of roommate disputes. When we were starting this, we researched all the reasons why roommates fight, from messiness to splitting the bills to furnishing to shared supplies. So we try to go down the dishes list in the sink. Dishes in the sink. Um, you know, someone, someone's girlfriend sleeping on the couch. Like, we try to go through and address all of those reasons. And now, and, you, have, now you get to add politics to the, to the mix as well. I, I haven't figured out how to solve that one. Yeah. Um, so we try to go through and address each one of those, uh, or at least the solvable ones, um, in turn. And uh, by doing that, create a much more, I would say, fun environment where roommates and people living together are able to focus on the good parts of it, mm-hmm. uh, hanging out, getting to know new people, um, versus the annoyances. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Brought to you by LifeLock. Equifax recently announced a breach of 143 million identities, and it seems like a good idea to take steps to get protection. Be among the millions who trust their identity theft protection to LifeLock. Go to LifeLock.com, use promo code Forbes for 10% off. So what do give me some examples. So what are spaces that people want private and what are spaces people don't mind sharing with four or five other people? I think it's pretty sure. obvious, but I want to hear how this, how this goes. Sure. So I, I think I'm a big believer that people need private space. You don't necessarily need a lot of private space, mm-hmm. um, but we don't do any shared rooms, for instance. There are other, the, you know, there are other companies doing housing that do shared rooms. Um, for us, every person, you know, whether they're an individual, a couple, we have some a number of married couples who live at Common, you know, they have a private room, in many mm-hmm. cases a private bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think the private bathroom is really important as well. Um, kitchens totally can be shared. Um, we've seen you know, a relatively small percentage of individuals' time, particularly when you look at the delivery options available today in major hubs, when you look at the pre-made food options. A lot of people eat out. A lot of people eat at their yeah, jobs. They work late. Yeah, they work late, yeah. et cetera. Travel uh, crazy. So if you can drop the rent by $300 and in exchange for sharing a kitchen, um, a lot of people will take you up on that. Mm-hmm. So kitchens, big living areas, and then access to nicer amenities and services than someone would have at any comparable price point so you know our buildings have you know cool movie rooms they have gyms they have roof decks they have a lot of the 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 interesting things that like people typically associate with luxury housing uh but we're trying to deliver it at a far sub luxury price point yeah and i think it it, the tech also helps as well i mean i remember when I first moved to the city like 15 years ago, we had three roommates and a big tube TV in, in the living room. And that's like, you know, mostly it was you know, mostly sports and movies. But like you, you who was ever there first because I watched what they wanted. And there's always a little debate. But now with phones and tablets and streaming, like if you want, I think everyone probably goes to their own rooms and has their own movie night or has their own right. shows like that's yeah. on your on your side. Yeah. And, and the technology that makes this great actually is the somewhat boring stuff it is having wi-fi that works tremendously well it is having a payment system that is robust and enables splitting the bills and 
just makes it super, super simple for people to pay their rent at the end of mm-hmm. every month. Um, you know, we, we also have the silly stuff like you can open your lock with your phone. Uh, but in, in the grand scheme of like what makes a great tech enabled home, it's really the basics that make your day to day life better. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, we've done 14 buildings thus far, uh, about 450 total rooms under management. Um, we haven't figured it all out. Yeah. We learn things every building we do. What is kind of your, I mean, you mentioned, you know, I thought of this and I, I was thinking like a 22 year old, you know, new to the city, but you mentioned married couples. Like what is your kind of core market? What's kind of the demographics of your members and how many members you have like 500 ish members right now? Yeah, 400, 500. Um, it, it really runs, runs the gamut. Um, you know, the median age is around 30, which is, is, is a little bit older than most people expect, but yeah. keep in mind the trends I was referring to earlier that, you know, living with roommates is often people's first step beyond living with their parents, Yes, um, which they're moving out of their parents' home later and later and later. Um, one important thing to look at is about 70% of our members are new to the city in which they live. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them are you know, moving from either overseas, in which case the thought of figuring out how to set up your cable and Wi-Fi in the United States is pretty terrifying. Yeah. Or they're just moving here for a job. And you move there, and, and they move in there for is it cost? Is also you get it, you all suddenly get you know built in not friend, built in community or friends. You know? Well, I, I don't think too many people move in for the community first and foremost. I like mm-hmm. to say people come for the convenience and they stay for the community because moving in and making a living decision based on the concept of community in the abstract is kind of strange. Mm-hmm. Um, most people look at it as, hey, this is a friendly home uh it's affordable and it's really convenient i don't have to figure out buying furniture most people don't own furniture in these age age demographics um you don't have to uh set up your utilities your cable things like that it's fully true but then it's like moving into a hotel in a way like you said before in some ways yes and but once you move in then it's our job to foster that community to build those relationships, to put the tools in our members' hands to uh, make that happen and make it a really warm, welcoming place. Mm-hmm. And that's what keeps people here. And, you know, the majority of people, you know, are on 12-month leases and the majority of them renew at the end of those leases. So that's been a, been a, been a big learning for us is really doing everything we can to foster that warmth, foster mm-hmm. that friendliness and that community. Um, and uh, it, it it's working working really well across the board. How does it work in terms of pricing and rent? Is what is the premium for that all that ease? Well, we try to triangulate between the price of a bedroom on Craigslist mm-hmm. and the price of a studio in the neighborhood. So we try to be between those two. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're always going to be pricier than Craigslist because we you know offer that convenience, we offer the cleaning, the shared supplies. Mm-hmm. But we're going to be a little cheaper than a studio as well. Um, where you're getting kind of your own, you know, more more private space, your own kitchen, et cetera. There should be an affordability for sharing. Yes. So I want to talk about this. I want to go back a little bit to your story. Um, I want to hear about how you first kind of the idea of common hit and how you got started, but also your backstory because you are not from a big city. No, I'm. Uh, I'm actually grew up in rural Arkansas, uh, about 90 miles south of Little Rock. Um, there was. Uh, one stoplight in the county, and uh, we packed up the car every Sunday and drove uh, 45 minutes to the grocery store. Not one stoplight in the town, but one stoplight in the county. In the county, okay. yes. It's a pretty big county, too. 
<laughs> and how how did you find your way from the one stoplight to um you know to New York and startups and you know this whole you know you're a you're a thought leader in urban living and you grew up in the most opposite of that like tell me that story well look i'm I'm really fortunate to have you know two parents who uh you know loved me and and really encouraged me to have horizons beyond the town we lived in um you know we traveled i i I did a lot of travel on my own as well Mm -hmm. when i was in high school and uh that really convinced me and and got me excited about uh about you know living in a place that had i don't know uh, more buildings so maybe three stoplights maybe three stoplights um like you know the number of stoplights i went through on my on my way here in 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 manhattan uh would blow the mind of most people back home but (laughs) Uh, you know, so I, I went to college in, um, at Yale, mm-hmm. um, came down here to New York afterwards, was actually running a game development studio at the time, um, and shortly thereafter started uh, General Assembly with a few friends. And what led from General Assembly? Because I seem there's a little bit of a common theme. I mean, give me a little kind of, give me a, a Twitter-length description of General Assembly, and it seems like it's different than common, but it's along the same sort of theme in a way. I yeah, they're, they're, they're more similar businesses than I think most people realize. You yeah. know, General Assembly is in education. We uh, train individuals with tech design and business skills. So we run three-month immersive programs, um, both for individuals as well for as well as for kind of large companies um, to help kind of add additional skills for individuals to get them a new job, um, for large organizations to keep their individuals and keep their employees um, fluent in digital skills. Yeah. Uh, the consumer side of General Assembly is an education business. And if you're looking at people 22 to 35, what do they spend money on? Uh, the number two area of consumer spend there is education. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Grad school, programs like General Assembly, et cetera. Um, number one, rental housing. Hmm. Um, weirdly, the lifetime value of a customer at General Assembly and at Common is about identical. Um, if you were to kind of take the contribution generated from every customer over the lifetime of that customer, mm. um, it's a very similar sales funnel in a lot of ways. Um, it's very similar marketing channels. So even though they're very different products, uh, one is in real estate, the other is in education, from a business vantage point, um, they're actually very similar in a lot of ways. Um, so it was, it was somewhat familiar uh, going into Common, building a lot of the same channels, a lot of the same processes, uh, that we had at, at General Assembly to, to target consumers and deliver a good product. Where did the idea for Common come from? How, what was your jump from General Assembly to Common? And was this something you're always thinking about? Yeah, it, so I've, I've, I've always been somewhat obsessed with housing, the history of housing, um, residential business models. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something we talked a lot about at, at General Assembly as a, as a team, just kicking around like, hey, you know, our students really struggle to find a place to live. Yeah. Not just do our students struggle, but our employees struggle, our instructors struggle to find, you know, nice, friendly places to live. And given how much of our income we are spending on rent, we are spending more than half of our income on rent every single month. We should be treated like a customer. Yeah, but some places you spend all that money and it makes you miserable. Makes you miserable. Yeah. You know, you, your, your refrigerator breaks. You call the property manager. You know, they don't come out for a week. Uh, yeah, or you don't feel safe or you don't, there's the buildings falling apart or your neighbors are loud. Like it's, you know, everyone works hard enough. They come home and it's right. not a, a lot of times it's not a refuge. Right. And as we were thinking about this, we looked at, well, given the percentage we're spending 
of our income we're spending on this, given the size of checks I'm writing every month to live in this building, we should be treated better than we're treated. Mm-hmm. So we came at this, you know, from a consumer product standpoint, saying like, you know, let's think about at General Assembly, we, we built great educational products that, you know, tackled a industry that was was pretty slow and didn't always provide the best experience to its customers. Mm-hmm. And at General Assembly, or at, at Common, it's a very similar issue that you have an old ossified industry that has kind of gotten lazy. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. By now, you've heard about the Equifax breach and how it may have impacted approximately 143 million people. These hackers made off with information needed to impersonate you. Names, social security numbers, birth dates, addresses. This information can be used to open credit cards, loans, even apply for a mortgage in your name. Now is the time to get protection. Sign up for LifeLock today. They use proprietary technology to detect a wide range of identity threats and will alert you if your information is being used. If there's a problem, a U.S.-based identity restoration specialist will work to fix it. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But LifeLock can help you see more than if you're just monitoring your credit. Go to LifeLock.com or call 1-800-LIFELOCK. Use promo code FORBES, that's FORBES, for 10% off your LifeLock membership. Visit LifeLock.com and save 10% now. Hey there, I'm Victoria Shade, the host of PetMD's Life with Pets, where we celebrate pets and the people who love them. Each week on the show, I'll explore a different facet of pet parenting, from troubleshooting challenges like litter box problems to dealing with muddy paw prints on the couch to learning all about how you can help dogs and cats by fostering. You'll hear from amazing guests, and on most episodes, you'll also hear from Millie, my studio pup who likes to snore in the background. We've got new episodes launching every Monday, so make sure to listen exclusively at podcastone.com, the new podcast one app or at apple podcasts and it would be great if you could rate and review the show so other pet parents can find it that's pet md's life with pets learn laugh and become a better pet lover along the way when you're wearing the right outfit it feels good like hitting all green lights good finding an onion ring in your french fries good getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a trunk club stylist because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories we also teach you how to style them And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. So day one, okay, you have this idea for Common. How do you get it going? First, do you guys rent? Do you own the? Do you guys buy the the spaces? Do you rent them? Do you long term lease? How does it depend on on the property? None of the above, interestingly. We are, we are a management company. Okay. Um, so as we're researching business models um, and, and trying to figure out how we do this, um, we actually came up with, even though we're not a hotel, the closest comparable being the hospitality business model, mm-hmm. where you have the owner, the owner of the building on one side, um, which goes out and hires a flag operator. So you know, Marriott typically doesn't own its, its, its buildings. Um, they partner with a building owner um, that says, I'm going to build a certain type of hotel. And they run it, basically. Right? Well, they manage it. Yeah. Um, they're, they're usually not guaranteeing. In some cases, they are. But they're usually not guaranteeing the owner a revenue stream. They're saying, hey, we will operate it to the best of our ability. Okay. And you know, most of that cash goes to the building owner, and Marriott takes fees off of that. Mm-hmm. That's how we run. 
So you've you so to get started, you found people that own buildings and you kind right. of pitched. What was that first pitch like? And did people <laughs> laugh laugh you out of the room? Did they? What was the? Well, I think a lot of people were very confused, um, and I think the most the toughest part to get over was the fact that uh, relatively few buildings in New York City or any city have the kind of layouts we need. I mean, most buildings you see are studios, one bedrooms, two bedrooms, and we need giant units. We need ideally, you know, four or five, six bedroom units, which are just very tough to find. Um, We found a building in early 2015 um, that fit actually this criteria. It was totally vacant, so we didn't want to, uh, for primarily moral reasons, uh, get involved in kicking people out or anything like that. Um, we found a building that was a failed condo project. Someone had built this condo in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, okay. and tried to sell the condo units, and they'd failed. So it was a totally vacant building that had entirely five-bedroom units. We were like, whoa, this is a very, very special find. Yeah. Um, so we had been talking to a couple of investors. Uh, one of those investors um, comes from a family real estate business, um, was also involved on the real estate tech side. Good to, good to have. Good, good guy to have around. And uh, we spoke to him, and he decided to buy the building for us. Um, so he bought that building. We came in, um, in that case, as the, the master tenant um, okay. and the management company. And we've been running that for two years now. That's Common Pacific. So he's the owner? He is and, the owner. And then you, okay, and you operate. And yes. that's, that's one, and, so how, and you said you had 18 properties now? We have 14. 14. How did all, different stories between each one, obviously, like how did these things come about? Everyone is, uh, every building is unique and uh, unique and special stories. So, um, most of them came with long, t- with, from relationships that we had built with real estate developers over time. So mm-hmm. the typical common building, we meet with a real estate developer, we get them excited about what we're doing. It's a lot easier now than it used to be because we have data across 14 buildings mm-hmm. and the data is good. So it's a lot easier to go to them and say, Hey, this is not a weird niche thing. Uh, this is a, in many ways, better way to operate a building. Yeah. Um, we work with them to decide on the correct layouts, the floor plans, the finishes. We have a spec book. We have a wonderful design and construction team. We have a spec book that details everything from the materials, the finishes, to how many gallons of hot water uh, we require in the building per member. Yeah. Uh, because there are, this is higher density. There are, there are just a lot of different specs than you would have on a traditional building. Does building, does each building have its own kind of, you mentioned these cleaners. Do they have like a super or someone who's a, is someone assigned to each building as a kind of a... Depending on the size of the building. I yeah. mean, we, we either have clusters of buildings that are near each other that are smaller, but we have someone assigned to that cluster, or we'll have a larger building that has dedicated staff on site. So it okay. really depends on, on, on the size of the building. And What's your biggest biggest property right now? Our largest is about 150 beds, um, which is in Borham Hill, Brooklyn. Wow. And um, we have several on the smaller end that are going to have 10 to 15 beds. Are they, what's your occupancy right now? Right now? Uh, over 99%. Wow. So it's, uh, we've, we get generally between 600 to 1,000 new applications per week in. Um, from people who want to live at Common. Now, not all of them are qualified, uh, but you know, the demand for this is is pretty tremendous. Yeah, and if you when you apply to Common, what is it like a little college application? Like, what what are you no. looking What are you looking for? Is it are you looking for like is it just financial background, or is it also you want you kind of try to shape the different you know cultures and and backgrounds and 
yeah, I guess so, interests. I would say. So, so we're pretty adamant that we don't we don't curate individuals beyond you know we do a financial check, we do a criminal background check, we do an interview, and the purpose of the interview is mostly to make sure they know what they're getting into. Okay, that they actually want to live in a community environment because the last thing we want is someone to move in and. Uh, they didn't know what they were getting into. Gotcha. And keep in mind that many people decide to move into Common after a video tour, not even an in-person tour. So okay. we want to make sure they're, they're, they know what they're moving into. But we intentionally decided not to you know, curate individuals to have you know, interest-based houses, things like that. One is because we like a mix of people in all of our homes. Yes. Um, I, think that's a, I think that's a good thing. I think it prevents clickiness. Um, it also... Keep in mind that one of the, the the value propositions and one of the best parts of living in common is you can move seamlessly between different homes. That if there's a room open in Chicago and you're living in New York and you want to move to Chicago, you can move into that room. And you don't have to pass some interest or personality test in order to move into that room. Mm-hmm. You just do it. And I think that's a, that's a really positive thing and avoids you – know, keep in mind, you have to if you're doing a housing startup. And this is one of the things that, that annoys me about – you know, some entrepreneurs who get into the real estate space is they start businesses in this industry without fully understanding the history of this industry and some of the terrible things that have happened in housing in the United States before. And there's a reason fair housing law exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a reason Are you why... talking about like discrimination and Absolutely. classism and all that? Yeah. Absolutely. And the history of housing in the United States is is not a great one when it comes to people running... Uh, especially in places like outer boroughs in New York, um, running discriminatory housing projects. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the reasons why we are really open to all, and for those applicants, uh, once you pass the basic checks, it's first come, first serve, is, you know, we want to be on the right side of that. And we don't want to be a community that is specific to any one occupation, any one group, any one age, Mm -hmm. et cetera. So it's, it's really important to us that we have that diversity. What's the best good surprise and the best bad surprise you've had? Because, you know, you, you people are messy. Housing is messy. You throw everyone together um, with this business. Kind of what's some of the wow, well, so, teachable so, moments of so this? The biggest, so, so I'll start with the biggest, the, the biggest downside surprise, which was when we, when, when we opened our first home, um, we kind of looked at living at Common like we were a SaaS product. Uh, software as a service and when you mm-hmm. moved in you could spin it up and whenever you didn't need it anymore you could spin it down so all of our leases were month to month okay that is you only had to make a commitment a month at a time to live in common um, that was a really bad idea for a number of reasons um, the main reason was that you can't build community in an environment where people are coming and going all the time yeah and the siege is a long-term rental a long-term kind of it's extended yeah. stay hotel yeah, is, exactly. is effectively yeah. Yeah, what we had yeah. And even though you know it was it was it was legal to operate in that way, um, it didn't give us the result we wanted. And 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 people would churn begets churn. So if you have a lot of people moving out, other people who live there look around and say, "Well, my two friends just moved out. Maybe I should move out too." Hmm, yeah. um, so within two months, we had scrapped the month to month. We had pushed people toward twelve month leases. Um, we really had to refresh most of our most of our membership. But like, real quick, I, I don't want to go down a, a rabbit hole here. But do you have to opera, Do you have certain regul? Like, are you regulated like a hotel or? No, we're not. We're, okay. we're regulated like a regular apartment building. Gotcha. Um, so we we there's a clear line at least in in New York City, and it's slightly different in different cities. But in New York, it's a clear line around thirty days. If you're renting for less than thirty days, you're a hotel. If you're renting for more than thirty days, you're an apartment. Okay. Um, you know, our minimum stay across the board is three months. Gotcha. Um, and most people are on twelve month leases. So after two months, go back to that thing. After two months, you said, all right, no more month to month. No more month to month. Yeah. yeah, we're going 
now almost all 12 month leases um there's a big premium for three month and six month stays and no one's on month to month so that was a big big learning early on but that uh took our churn rate it, it, it cut our churn rate by 10x um it took wow. our churn rate from about 30 percent a month to about three percent a month um which actually created kind of a long-term permanent community in these homes which is what you really need to get the kind of stickiness and to get the kind of great stories you want about people coming together and you know living together yeah um so that was that was kind of the biggest the biggest learning um honestly the biggest positive surprise has been the relative lack of sticky roommate disputes hmm. you'd think 450 members we, we'd have some crazy stories in all honesty i don't have many crazy stories for you um people generally Man, it's boring i thought you'd have it's some good, really some boring I, I thought i would too i thought there would be a you know uh, i thought I, I thought i'd have more good stories to bring home to my wife yeah. let me say that <laughs> But, you know, most people who live in common are pretty hardworking. Yeah. Um, you know, I mentioned the median age around 30. Um, we have some empty nesters as well. So it's a, it's, it's a real mix. And uh, it is certainly not a hard partying, crazy, messy culture. Gotcha. And that feels good. Have there been any companies founded inside common? Or have there been any, any, any common marriages yet? <laughs> there have been a few common relationships. Yes, uh, sure. Absolutely. Um, and so there's, there's certainly been a number of companies founded at Common. That's, really? That goes without saying, yeah. Um, what is the kind of, the, what do you look to do in the future? Like you mentioned that you are managers. Do you see yourselves working with people that will maybe build build buildings to house Common? Like, so oh, we do. Okay. Already, yeah. Right. I mean, so a number of our, yeah. I mean, a number of our buildings are ground up developments. Um, and you knew going in that this is going to be, this is going to be built for, for this purpose. Yeah, I mean, for most of the ones that we that we vote the ground up buildings we've opened today, um, we kind of snagged at the beginning of their construction process, and we're able to tweak things um, enough that worked for us. Going forward, you're going to see more developments that were built ground up for common. Mm-hmm. Um, so next year, we're you know we're opening a number of new buildings, and many of them were built you know as originally patches of dirt. Uh, where a developer came in and said, hey, I'm going to build common designed units. Wow, okay. And the funny thing about this industry and how long things take is the lessons we're learning now will be actually implemented in buildings that are opening next summer. Give me, give me a few lessons. Sure. So layout of community spaces. Okay. Um, a community space is a, a space that's outside of a unit. Um, think about it as like a nice lounge, a game room, something like that. It is totally useless unless somebody sees it on their way from the entry of the building to where they live. Because if they see it, they see someone hanging out there, they say, hey, I'm going to go hang out there too. If they have to walk down the hall into some weird dark corner to get to the community space, uh, it doesn't really work that well. Hmm. They don't they don't hang out there. And, and if you never have people hanging out there, uh, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like the casinos. You have to walk past the slot machines before you get to the hotel room. As, except we have windows. There you go. Or like an, like you look at I was you stay like an Ace Hotel like you the lobby is the the hub and you have to go through, like you see people hanging all the time on the way in same kind of idea with with Common Ace, Ace Hotel is a fascinating story by the way at least in New York it's actually a continuously operating single room occupancy uh, building you know it's but I, I mentioned in, what do you mean by that I'm sorry so so I mentioned in the earlier part of the interview about residential hotels yes 
and uh, the history of housing in the United States. So you still actually see a few of these residential hotels in operation, but you typically don't notice them when you walk by. You don't know what they are. Okay. Um, the Ace Hotel is a great example of this. Uh, the Ace Hotel historically is not a tourist hotel. It is a residential hotel. Um, and you actually still have some extant members, extant people who live in the Ace Hotel as a residential hotel. They play, pay next to nothing in rent. I was going to say, that's would be pricey. Next to nothing in rent because they're, they're protected um, by city's regulations. You can't kick these people out. Uh, many of them have been living in the building that became the Ace Hotel for many, many, many decades. Really? Most so it's are, like an old school, like Chelsea Hotel kind of kind of feel. Absolutely, it's it's still an operating residential hotel, and the operators of the Ace literally have to wait until one of these people dies uh, to get the room back. Wow! Um, and then they'll renovate that room and convert it into a hotel room. Huh. There, I did, there so you, you go. Could walk down the hallway, and uh, you know some of those rooms are hotel rooms, and some of them are. Uh, you know, SRO rooms. Man, you're getting ripped off. You're paying you're paying 500 bucks a night. The other guy's paying 500 bucks a, a month, maybe. Well, it's funny. You may have uh, seen the story that um, uh, that came out probably two years ago of the cab driver that went into a former SRO hotel in Chelsea and uh, dug up this arcane part of New York City housing law that said, if you stay in a hotel that used to be an SR, a single room occupancy residential hotel for more than 30 days, you can demand a lease at the rental rate that was established in 1968. Wow. And this cab driver did that. And now he lives in a hotel uh, in Chelsea for something like $200 a month. All right. Let's everyone book the Ace Hotel for uh, 31 <laughs> days. I'm sure they have, uh, they have some way around that, yes. but uh, not all of them do. And how does, I mean, there's a few of, you know, this idea is, there's a few companies like, you know, WeWork is experimenting, we live, and there's other ones popping up. How does Common kind of put their brand forward? Yeah. Uh, how do you, is it, you know, how does it differentiate? I'm sure there's room for everybody, obviously, but how does this kind of, do you look at other people, you say, this is our mantra, and we're going to just stick to it? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're very focused on, on, on what we do, and what we do really always goes back to the concept of home. Um, we want Common members to be permanent long-term residents of common and part of this community. And everything we do and every decision we make kind of goes back to this, this idea and this concept of home. Mm -hmm. From the furniture we choose to the finishes we choose to how we do our pricing um, really goes back to this idea that we want to be uh, you know, not just a short-term temporary place to live, but a long-term home for our members. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that does differentiate us from a lot of other players in the space who experiment with perhaps running a hotel or uh, doing things that are a little more short-term. Mm -hmm. um, so I really think that kind of long-term stay is a, is a very important part of what makes uh, Common what it is. Cool. And you, know, you just before we wrap up, I have a, gen a general question, kind of a get your fortune-telling uh, you know, outfit on. You, know, you, you said you're a, a big New York City, you're a big American housing geek. You love the history of it all. You know, there's a very big shift happening in America right now, um, you know, People are leaving small towns, going to big cities. At the same time, we talked about the hollowing out. The big cities are getting crazily expensive that you know very few people can afford in general. What is the Americans? And then on the other side, you have you know the whole self-driving car thing that could happen and just change everything. We don't even know what is like the American city look like in ten, fifteen years. Like what's gonna? What do you predict happening here? Well, that's certainly certainly the big question. I think there's 
the ironic thing is there's actually still a lot of buildable space in a lot of these cities, mm-hmm. um, including New York, including San Francisco, still have a lot of wildly underbuilt lots, you know, one-story, two-story buildings, parking lots, mm-hmm. um, places that are very much underutilized. And I think the question Central, is... Central Park? Uh, Central Park, yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, I think the question is, and just walk down a street in, you know, a place like, you know, we're in you know, the village right now, or, you know, Chelsea's up the road, and there's all sorts of space that can be used as infill. I think the question is, how will this battle shake out between uh, NIMBYs, so people who generally don't want development in their community, yeah. um, versus housing activists versus the rising kind of yes in my backyard the yimby community um i think that will be very very telling um wait there's there's yimbies now too they're yimbies holy mouth they're holy yimbies cow. and uh they there's there's a san francisco yimby party <laughs> um they're they're very active there there's a washington dc branch there's a new york branch um and, and what do they want they want change they more want housing more housing gotcha. more housing uh, because if you look at it, we've actually really slowed down the pace of building housing in, in, in many of these cities. Um, a lot of this comes just to you know us hitting our, our zoning caps, um, where many neighborhoods have actually been downzoned. That is, are Yimbys all just contractors and developers? <laughs> well, some some of them are, but uh, many of them are actually young people mm-hmm. who feel that they've really been uh, really been screwed in this current housing environment where. You know, you look out in San Francisco, a place like San Francisco, when people first, when people started moving to San Francisco, you know, the first wave of, of techies back in the, you know, 1960s, 1970s, um, buying a house was pretty easy and inexpensive yeah. um, versus income. Um, today, it's more or less inaccessible. So I think a lot of young it's all, people... It's all Facebook's fault. It's all Facebook's fault. I mean, just <laughs> blame the techies. Um, so I, I think a lot of young people, whether they're in tech or not, um, feel uh, really like they got the short end of the stick mm-hmm. uh, moving into big metro areas and just there's there's no chance of affordability. So I I think the the other factor is autonomous vehicles. Um, do those make the inner ring of suburbs more palatable to young people who want to be connected and want to live in have dense, vibrant environments? Mm-hmm. And what is the pl- next plan for the next you know year or two at, um, at Common? What, what, what are you focused on now? Well, we're really focused on kind of scaling operations. Um, we're adding about one new building a month right now. Wow, okay. Um, so that's that's just a lot of stuff. Um, and, you know, kind of that uh, push between breadth and depth. So depth means going into cities where we know there's demand, opening another building in New York, another one in D.C., another one in Chicago, um, versus breadth where we go into new cities. So we just announced uh, we're doing a project in New Orleans, mm. um, opening about 250 beds um, in New Orleans um, in 2019. Um, you know, we got approached by a developer in that case who said, mm. you know, I'm doing co-living. I love Common. I want to bring you here. Uh, we have a lot of stuff like that um, in, the, in, in the fire. So really kind of that push and pull between doing more in the cities we, we, we have presences in um, versus going into new places. Amazing. Well, Brad, I really appreciate the time. Uh, when you do come up with a juicy, salacious, you know, common roommate story, you have to come back and, and share it with us. That there, there will be a, there's a time for everything. <laughs> um, Brad Hargraves from Common, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of the Forbes interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. If you'd like to reach us, email us at interview at podcastone.com. Thanks for listening. 
Vanek from The Lady Gang. And if you haven't heard of our podcast, you are missing out. And this month, we are doing this series called Lady Gang Your Life, where we're having experts from every field come on, and they're giving their expert opinion on everything from social media to skin to hormone health. I think you guys are going to love it. So grab a mimosa and come hang out with us every Tuesday on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and Apple Podcasts. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.